All right, well, why don't we pray, and then we'll dive in together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. We love you because you have first loved us. We praise you as our Savior. You have sent Jesus to be our kinsman redeemer who has redeemed us from our wretched state in sin and death and under the rule of the devil and by the purchase that he accomplished through his own blood, his own sacrifice. We thank you for the liberation that we now have, the freedom we have in Christ, our justification, our adoption, our reconciliation to you. We thank you that Lord, that the devil has been defeated for us through Christ and uh, that we now live in him. And we have a hope that is unshakable. And we thank you that we have a salvation that is uh, protected by your power, guaranteed to us in heaven and ready to be revealed at the last time. Even though we right now experience the foretaste of your saving work. And uh, we thank you for the spirit. The Holy Spirit whom you've sent to dwell in us as another comforter, another helper, an advocate. We thank you that he is also a seal guaranteeing the fact that Christ has marked us off as his own possession and will one day return to take us to himself. We thank you that we anticipate the consummation of salvation as akin to a marriage supper, a celebration of the fullness of relationship with Christ through all eternity. Lord, these things we know ought to fill our lives right now with peace and hope and joy and love. And we pray that you would more and more fill us with those fruits of the Spirit, that we might live a life of faith, a life uh, like those who have gone before us who died in faith, seeing salvation from afar and hoping in these things that are beyond this world, like strangers and exiles on the earth. Help us to live in that same way. And we pray this morning that as we begin our day of worship, that you would fill our hearts with your word and exhilarate us with the truths of your word, instruct and equip us for service, and remind us of the truths of the gospel even through the books of Esther and Job this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to start with the book of Esther and just going to briefly touch on some introductory things here. First, the author. Like so many of the Old Testament books, we don't know who wrote it. The date. The king mentioned in uh, Esther is called Ahasuerus and like so many of the kings of Persia and Babylon, they would have different ways that they were referred to, some more titles, some more personal names. We're not sure which is which, but most scholars agree that Ahasuerus corresponds with a king called Xerxes, and that his reign was 486 through 465 BC. So obviously, if the book is talking about him, then it would have to have been written after that time. And remember, we're counting downward B.C. And the details of the book indicate a date before the conquest of the Persian Empire by Greece. There's a lot of details of the book that scholars have pointed to saying, well, with these things in mind, the Persian Empire could not have been defeated by the Greeks yet. And that that defeat became in 336. So it kind of gives you a range somewhere between 486 and 336 you know, say a 150-year period that we can say must have been written, the book of Esther, in this time. So this is obviously one of the later books written in the Old Testament. And then the recipients, obviously, would be God's covenant people, the Jews, which, by the way, do you guys know where the term Jews came from? Can anyone guess? Jerusalem? Okay, but uh, probably actually not Jerusalem so much as the region, Judea. Judea or Judah. So that was sort of a, became a shorthand way of referring to them, especially in the post-exilic period. And so most likely this was written to the Jews, perhaps primarily to the Jews who were back in Israel in the diaspora, but also 
especially given the content of Esther, which speaks of Jews still in exile, perhaps to the diaspora Jews. Diaspora just means the scattering. So even even today, you know, you might talk about the Jews outside of the land of Israel's diaspora Jews, Jews still scattered among the nations, right? So it seems that this book would have a wide audience, the Jewish people, whether they were back in the land or those still in exile. And then the genre of the book, it's, it's very interesting. It is obviously still historical narrative, but it does have features that are akin to the wisdom literature. It sort of tells lessons through a very stylized form of narrative. I mean, you get that. This is not like reading through First and Second Kings. It's sort of, there's much more, there's a, a much more aesthetic to it, much more beauty. That's why some scholars have called it a novella, right? An, a mini novel. There's a sense in which it, it has that type of flavor to it, right? It really, when you read the book of Esther, it's really thrilling in many ways. Sort of like Ruth, you know, where there's surprises and ups and downs and turns of twists of plot and irony and things like that. So uh, that's from an actual movie that was made about Esther, which I have not watched. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but uh, it's a, I thought that was a, an interesting... Uh, it's actually a photograph of the real Esther. But. This is a strange book. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, for one thing, it doesn't mention God at all. It doesn't mean that God is not uh, featured in the book, but it doesn't. he's never explicitly mentioned, which is very unusual, obviously, for a book of the Bible. It also focuses entirely on Jews, who this is clearly, when you're talking about the reign of Ahasuerus, you're talking about after Cyrus, after the Edict of Cyrus, where the Jews were allowed to return, after the days when the Jews had already gone back to, to the land of Israel and rebuilt the temple and the city. So what's interesting about this book is it doesn't mention any of that. It doesn't mention the Jews in Israel, doesn't mention the, the temple, doesn't mention the land of Israel at all. It focuses entirely upon Jews who had decided to stay in Persia and not go back to the land of Israel. And so there's a very sort of Gentile flavor to the book in in terms of the whole context in which it was written, but it's about the Jews who were living in that context among the Gentiles. So those are the things, the main things that makes it unusual. And what I was going to say is that this has led both Jews before the church, um, in other words, um, Jews in the intertestamental period, toward the end of the, of the intertestamental period, as the canon of Old Testament scripture was being formed or being recognized, and also Christians, both Jews and Christians later on, have questioned, at least raised some question about the canonicity of Esther, whether it truly does belong in the canon of Scripture, but ultimately has been recognized by both Jews and Christians as being as belonging, having the qualities of canonicity and belonging in the canon. But like some books, there has been some debate among some Jews and Christians about its canonicity because of these kind of strange features of it. Okay, we're going to... Just an outline of Esther, and this would be a time when it would be good for you to turn to Esther 1 and just sort of scan through as we walk through. You can look at your headings. You can sort of scan the content, looking for certain things, features of it as we go along, just to get our bearings here. We're just going to cover the book of Esther, an outline of it, in a very broad sort of 50,000-foot way. But first, chapters 1 and 2... Uh, And and I'm actually drawing these headings from an introduction to the Old Testament that I have used by Tremper Longman and Raymond Dillard. And so I I didn't make these headings up, but I thought that they were helpful in that they show that the book of Esther, the storyline sort of revolves around three sets of feasts. So first, you have these feasts that are thrown by the king, King Ahasuerus. And you probably remember the story that in chapter 1, Queen Vashti offended the king before his feast guests, his guests at the feast, by not not coming. 
upon his request, and she's removed from her office as the queen. And then Esther, a Jew, is in this strange twist of events, ends up being chosen to be to replace Vashti as the queen in chapter 2, at least in the first part. The, the Chapter 2 ends, though, with this strange event where Mordecai, another Jew who is who has basically served as a father for Esther, um, even though she doesn't, she isn't his daughter, he sort of fathered her, and he finds out about a plot against the king and makes the plot known, foils this plot against King Ahasuerus. All right, so this is the feast of King Ahasuerus. You have Esther, a Jew, becoming the new queen, and Mordecai, another Jew who's related to Esther, foiling a plot against the king. Then, we might call this next section, uh, describe it as revolving around feasts that are thrown by the new queen, Esther. And the way that this happens is that Haman, who is a high official, sort of like Joseph was second under Pharaoh, Haman had been raised to be like second under king, the king Ahasuerus. So a very high official becomes angry at the Jews. And you remember that he wanted everyone to bow before him and Mordecai the Jew refused to bow. And so he not only wanted to kill Mordecai, but he wanted to kill all the Jewish people. So he clearly has this animosity and hatred toward the Jews, which we'll actually talk about later, why that is the case, probably. But he instigates the king issuing an edict that would result in the destruction of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And the king, not not realizing... Um, goes along with this and, and issues this edict. That's chapter 3. Then chapter 4, Mordecai, hearing about the edict, goes to Esther. He knows Esther, obviously, and he persuades her to act to save her people. And that's chapter 4. Then chapter 5, the first part of the chapter, you see that Esther gives a feast, the first of her feasts, for the king and Haman is there as well. And this first feast seems to be, you know, you're waiting for her to do something. But what what happens is she gains the king's favor and the king says, you know, ask whatever you will and I will do it up to, you know, half my kingdom. One of these kind of famous things that that kings say, like uh, King Herod said to his daughter-in-law who had danced before him. It's sort of a this ostentatious thing. You know, the wine is flowing. He's he gets too caught up with himself. But, and she says, here's what I want. I want you and Haman to attend another feast. And so she sends, she, you have this gap between these two feasts. Another feast is coming. That night, right, the night before the feast, Haman plots, establishes a plot to kill Mordecai. And you remember he builds these tall gallows, like 80 feet foot gallows. And he's going to hang Haman on the, or, uh, Mordecai on these gallows the following day. And, but at the same time, the king, you remember, can't sleep. And so he asks for some, anything to put you to sleep, it's going to be, you know, government records. So he asks for some government <laughs> records to be brought to him. And it just so happens that the record of Mordecai foiling a plot against him is in the records that he reads. And he asks his officials, was anything ever done for Mordecai? And they say, no, nothing was ever done. And so he sets a plan to honor Mordecai. And bada bing, bada boom, the next day he has Haman carry out the plan to honor Mordecai. And so Haman is even further enraged. And then you have the second feast. And at the second feast, of course, uh, Haman is exposed and he is put to death because of not only a, a mistaken perception on the part of the king that he was assaulting the queen, but also when the queen exposes that he had plotted to kill her people, that she was a Jew and that Haman's edict would kill her people. And so Haman ends up being uh, killed and hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai, right? And then you have this final set of feasts, and this is what you call the Feast of Purim. We'll look at that as we go through here. But the king issues a second edict upon Esther's request to, because he can't revoke the first edict, sort of like uh, the king of Persia had ended up, or Darius had ended up being tricked by his officials to uh, make this law that 
condemn Daniel, but when he wanted to go back on it, he couldn't do it, right? And so we see the same thing here. So what he does is he issues a second edict that says, okay, there's, this edict still stands. The enemies of the Jews can seek to destroy them, but the Jews can defend themselves. Um, and this is in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, you see that the Jews defend themselves and they end up destroying their enemies, right? And, and you sort of have this picture of how could that have happened, but they, they were enabled, you know, by divine, you, you presume, by the hand of God to, to have victory over their enemies. And then in the second part of, chapter, of the chapter, Mordecai establishes a feast to celebrate these victories of the Jews over their enemies and how God had reversed their fortunes and delivered his people from Haman. And this is the Feast of Purim. And so this is a feast that would be carried, would be, would carry through the history of Israel. And so you start to realize, oh, this is what the book of, is- of um, Esther is really about. It's an explanation for where this feast came from, this Feast of Purim that we celebrate as the Jewish people. Um, and then in the, at the end of the book, Mordecai is sort of honored in the way that Haman had been honored, except even more so, right? And so that's how the book ends. So this is sort of an overview of the book of Esther. Anyone questions before we move forward in the book? Okay. Now, we ask the question then, what is the book of Esther all about? And the king is shocked. Um, But what is it all about? Well, I want to highlight, there's lots of things you could say here, but I want to highlight the main theme in my understanding is this ironic reversal of fortunes theme. So try to taste the delicious irony of the book with me for a second. Haman writes the script for how he would be honored and he ends up having to carry out this script to honor Mordecai. You remember how that worked, right? He, uh, he anticipates that the king is going to honor him because the king says, I, I want to honor someone, Haman. How should I do it? And Haman thinks it's him. And so he lays out this script of how he should honor him. And it turns out that the king says, I want you to do that for Mordecai, his enemy. You know? And so there's this ironic reversal of fortunes. You know? And then... Haman builds gallows on which to hang Mordecai, but ends up being hung on those gallows himself. Another, you know, irony, ironic reversal of fortunes. And then another is that Haman gets the king to pass an edict, allowing the Jews' enemies to kill them. But instead, the king passes another edict, allowing the Jews to kill their enemies. So again, these multiple layers of delicious irony that centers around the reversal of fortunes of various Jews, particularly Mordecai and the whole Jewish people. So what is the main point of this? I think the main point of the book then emerges out of that main theme of an ironic reversal of fortunes, that this was not just chance, right? This wasn't a a chance happening that all these things happened, but rather what you're seeing is the implication that God was at work and that he... What emerges, the message that emerges from the book is that God is going to sovereignly deliver his people from their enemies through a reversal of fortunes. When it seems like their enemies will triumph over them, God orders the events so that they fall into their own trap and they are destroyed and his people are delivered, a reversal of fortunes. And that actually is a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. So even though God is not mentioned in the book, his activity is implied in so many different ways. So, for instance, when they're choosing a new king, lo and behold, the most beautiful woman in the whole empire is a Jew. And so there's implication of God's providential activity, that she would be so beautiful, and that her beauty obviously came from God, and that she would be noticed by the king out of all the women that she has chosen. So God's activity is implied there. It's implied in the king's in the king's lack of sleep on that fateful night where he can't sleep. And so God is not mentioned, but you see his handiwork. It's, it's, it's very similar to the book of Ruth, where Ruth ends up, lo and behold, in the field of Boaz, right? And lo and behold, he shows up to the field that very day. And lo and behold, he takes note of her. So 
God isn't mentioned as doing those things, but there's an imp- a clear implication that it was God who had stirred the king so that he couldn't sleep. And then, lo and behold, what book has he brought? The very book and the very place that he reads is where Mordecai's uh, deliverance or foiling of the plot against him is there. And so you just see God's providence underlying everything, even though he's not mentioned, his fingerprints are all over the events of the book. And and so when you look at uh, Esther 4.14, this is an example. You remember the famous line that Mordecai gives to Esther when he's urging her to take action on behalf of the Jews. And she's expressing hesitation. Remember, she says, you can't just walk into the king's throne room. You have to be called in. And even me as the queen, if if he decides that he's not going to call me in, I could be, my life could be in danger. In other words, this is a very dangerous thing you're asking me to do, Mordecai. And what does he say? Chapter 4, verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So, And he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, this is the whole thing. that God is not mentioned there. But what is Mordecai implying? What do you think he's implying? Clear, yeah, I mean, I mean a, a, a help will come from some other place, right? In other words, God will raise up help. He's not going to allow his people to perish. And, and who knows, Esther, whether God might have placed you in this very position for this very time. So you see... That sort of flavor runs throughout the book. And you can see it's, it's almost intentional. It screams God, but never mentions it explicitly. And so what you come away with is this idea of God ordering events meticulously, you know, down to the sleep of the king and the beauty of Esther and all of these things for the purpose, the end purpose of delivering his people and reversing their fortunes where their enemies end up being destroyed and they end up gaining the honor that their enemies once had, right? So you see, this is at the heart of the book. God's sovereignty to deliver his people from their enemies through a mighty reversal of fortunes. And not so much by, you know, ten plagues upon Egypt, but upon his secret providential activity in history, ordering the events that take place to bring these things about. So, very much akin to the book of Ruth in that regard, right? Where you come away going, oh, God was at work. He did all this, right? Okay. Now, that being said, you also see in the book a strong theme of God's people acting in obedience and God's people acting in courage. So in no way, even though God is at work ordering all these things, you can see even from chapter 4, verse 14, there's this clear note of, but even though God is going to save us, we must act, right? So God acts through all the events of history. He orders everything, but he acts through the courage and the obedience of his people in hard times. And so there's God's sovereignty and human responsibility are woven into the story of God's commitment and faithfulness to deliver his people and reverse their fortunes. Now, I do want to highlight one other thing that is very interesting about this book, is that is Mordecai's lineage is identified in chapter 2, verse 5. He's actually identified as a Benjaminite from the family of Kish. Now, Kish was the father of Saul. So, there is a, um, a clear... That, that line about his lineage screams tracing his Mordecai's line back to King Saul. And what's interesting is that Haman is identified as Haman the Agagite. In fact, it says it multiple times through the book. Now, Agag was an Amalekite king. Now, if you go back to 1 Samuel 15 for a moment... You remember a story that involved Saul and Agag. That God had told... So first of all, you have, um, you have this incident in Exodus 17 
where after the Israelites are delivered out of Egypt, as they're traveling through the desert, the Amalekites destroy, uh, seek to attack. They attack the Israelites and seek to destroy them. And God pronounces judgment on the Amalekites. He says, I am going to wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> Except that judgment is delayed until the days of King Saul. And in 1 Samuel 15, you see that Samuel tells Saul, so the Lord tells Saul through Samuel, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Why? He says, I have noted that Amalek did not, what Amalek did to Israel, opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. So that delayed judgment is now going to be executed by Saul. Except, you remember what he does. He doesn't completely destroy them. He spares their king, whose name is Agag. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, verse 8, and devoted to destruction all the people. And this led to this famous act of disobedience, where Samuel rebuked him for not carrying out God's judgment as he ought it. And so there is a sense of sort of unfinished business here. God's judgment not being executed in the way that he wanted against his the enemies of his people, right? So it, even though Samuel ends up destroying Agag, the Amalekites persist in the storyline of Scripture as an ongoing enemy of God's people. And you can't help... When, a, when Haman is described as Haman the Agagite, and he has this almost unexplained animosity toward the Jews, doesn't he? Where he's mad at Mordecai, but he wants to kill the whole Jewish people, not just Mordecai, right? Which seems like, where is this coming from? Well, those lineages seem to have been given for the very purpose of showing that this is a, an age-old animosity between God's people and their enemies, and that Agag's animosity traces back to the fact that the Israelites had carried out this judgment against his ancestors, right? And against, he seems to have been of the royal line. And so, there, this clash between a Haman and the Jews actually is part of a larger story of God's enemies and their hatred toward God's people and their attempting to destroy God's people that traces back to the Amalekites and how God had said, I'm going to destroy your enemies for their hatred and opposition of you. And so there is this sense of completion of that destruction that had begun, but not been carried out as it should have been in the days of Saul. And now... God destroys Haman the Agagite, and in, in, verse, in chapter 9, it's, it makes a point of saying all of his sons, and he uses a descendant of Saul, Mordecai, in the process of bringing it about. So you see there's this other twist of, of God's providence woven into the book, right? Where you're just most, supposed to come away amazed like, surely no one can thwart the plans of God. Surely God will be faithful to carry out his purposes even down through the ages. And though man may forget, God will not. And so, this is not the type of faithfulness that we like to think about. We like to think about God's faithfulness to keep his promises of redemption, but he will also be faithful to keep his promises of judgment. Which, by the way, for God's people, the two come together. Our redemption is tied in with the destruction of our enemies. Okay, now what about Esther in the New Testament? A few things to be said here. One, Esther is one of a small number of Old Testament books that's never referred to in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't refer, it doesn't allude to Esther or cite any verses from Esther. But that main point of Esther, God will sovereignly deliver his people from their enemies through a reversal of fortunes. Well, that does find its sort of ultimate expression in the redemption that's announced in the gospel of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Because in the gospel, you have Jesus, this ultimate clash between the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan himself, who possesses Judas, even as he's betraying them into the... And you think, right? You think, the, enemies has, the enemy has won, right? And the enemy extinguishes the light at the cross. The land is shrouded in darkness. 
Here the king is hanging upon a cross as a man accursed, as defeated and and dead. And yet, in this great reversal of fortunes, the very thing that you thought would be the end and the victory of the enemy turns out to be the way that the enemy is destroyed and that God in his providence brings about a great reversal of fortunes for his people. And so you have these passages like Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, right? Where, well, let's read verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And notice this, through death, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see that? Like, he died so that he might defeat death and deliver his people from death. You see? So, this, there it is again, that, that theme. But it's the ultimate expression of it, of that theme of God in a great twist of irony, delivering his people in his providence uh, by the very thing that looked like it was, it was supposed to destroy ends up being the way that God saves. Right? So that theme that you see in Esther so beautifully displayed comes to its most beautiful and final expression in the cross of Jesus Christ. And of course, it will also be reach its consummation at the end of the age, right? In fact, let's turn to Second Thessalonians for a second and see if you can, as you read it, the text this time, See if you can discern this reversal of fortunes, right? So verse, verse um, 4, he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. So this church is being persecuted severely. He says this, your persecution is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his Father when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Do you see the picture again, isn't it? It's like here the church is suffering at the hands of their enemies and it looks as if their enemies are triumphing over them and yet what is true is that their very suffering testifies to the fact that they belong to God and that a day is coming when God will afflict those who are afflicting you and they will end up suffering destruction while you are glorified with Christ. So so the the reversal of fortunes, the deliverance of God in a mighty reversal of fortunes is experienced now, right? In the cross and resurrection and will find its ultimate consummation at the end of the age when he finally returns to cast that ancient serpent into the abyss and to bring his people into the new creation. And so Esther sort of, there's a sense in which Esther, though it's never alluded to in the New Testament or cited, yet presents this picture, this pattern, that will find its ultimate expression in the redemptive work of God in the New Testament, in the person and work of Christ. Right? And just as God was faithful to defeat Haman the Agagite, so he will be faithful to carry out his purposes of judgment upon all the enemies of God's people. All right, that's Esther. Any any questions about the book before we move forward to Job? Jeremy? Yeah. Just, we're, I was just looking at Samuel, as you pointed out there. So uh, Samuel dismembered. Yeah, destroyed it. Yeah. Aim, yeah. The egg. Oh, did not. Right. But that, since he was his, of his offspring... Right. Yeah, there's a little bit of mystery there. Apparently, some descendants of Agag survived, you know, which actually would not have been that uncommon for the royal family, 
even even some of the royal family of any king to be stashed in different places that if anything ever happened to them they would be you remember how what's his name um yeah but um Jezebel and Ahab you know he had stashed sons in multiple cities until Jehu came along and found every one of those sons and put them all to death but so something like that may have happened you know and we're not exactly sure there there seems to be a totality in the nature of the judgment but but they but the Amalekites clearly did persist in the history of Israel because it says he devoted them to destruction but that doesn't mean he right Right. Right. Similar to the destructions in Joshua, where you see mention of complete destruction, but that doesn't mean that some may not have escaped in some way. And you do see the Canaanites persisting in the land. So there's various reasons for why that happened, obviously in Joshua. But but what we find out is that there was an Agagite heir that was living now in Persia in the Persian Empire and actually had ascended to a very prominent place in the in the administration of Ahasuerus. So, uh, I would assume that Haman's uh, offspring had some level of culpability when they were hung with him, right? Yeah, I think there seems to have been an emphasis upon God sort of wiping out all of his sons for his wickedness, similar to the way he would do that with entire dynasties in the kingdom period in Israel, you know, where he, a prophet would announce, your line is going to be wiped out. And that happened multiple times. And it's interesting also that this idea of an adversary of a defeated foe, that actually, like you see that in the reign of Solomon, where Solomon, God raised up an adversary and one of his adversaries was a child of one of the enemy peoples that Solomon defeated that had survived and now harbored this resentment toward Solomon and God raised him up as an adversary to Solomon as judgment. And So there's a strong emphasis or implication that the same had been true of Haman, that he was aware of his the, the descendancy and how they'd been wiped out by Saul, you know, and so that he hated the Jews, you know. So, anti-Semitism, I guess, uh, for a variety of reasons, never seems to die, does it? Yeah. Anyone else? Now, you, see, now you want to go back and read Esther again, and kind of you want to you want to experience the story afresh. Yeah, it really. It's not just like the cold history. You know, it has right. like twists and turns, and the action goes up and down. Yeah. Right. It's kind of why I've actually thought about preaching Esther, and I thought, how would you do it? Because it's like you really need to read the whole thing together to really feel it and experience it in the way. It's almost like a one-sermon book, you know? <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it's just drama and irony and twists and turns of plot. And so, and just, and humor, you know? Haman coming into the king and the king saying, Haman... There's a man that I want to honor. And Haman's thinking, oh, I know who that is, you know. What should I do for this man? And so he puts the, the, you know, the most extravagant honor, the plan to honor possible. And then it turns out, he says, I want you to do that for Mordecai the Jew, whom he hated and was plotting to kill. And so there's these humorous, that's why I say delicious irony to the book, you know. All right. Well, let's move on to the book of Job then. I chose that commentary cover because I think that it really sort of captures the depth of agony that Job must have been in well. It's, I think I've always found, I just found that a striking piece of art. It really does really get to, it, it gives you a sense of the type of horror over the suffering of a man that you, you should feel with when you come to Job. All right, let's talk about some introductory matters. Who wrote Job? Well, an anonymous author, but clearly a, a well-educated man. You know, the commentators will say he was one of the wise. You know, you have these sort of wise men of that period. He could, you know, discourse on everything from, you know, philosophical matters to, 
plant life and creatures of the you know of the sea and land and clearly one of the wise there's really no not a whole lot of evidence as to when the book was written some people sense potentially an allusion to certain psalms within the book and there is certainly some potential for that but then you also have the question of whether the psalm might have been alluding to Job or the Job to the psalm and so even that it's difficult it's really difficult to date the letter it sort of floats in the canon with a level of mystery as to and that's actually in some ways part of it isn't it that Job comes to us perhaps more than any other book with this sort of universal flavor that these are lessons for man in every age the recipients, obviously, while there is a universal flavor to it, a timelessness to it, yet it's clearly for the people of God, part of the canon of Scripture delivered to the Old Covenant people and to us as well as the New Covenant people of God. Historicity, it is a stylized... So in other words, I, I made this point I, I do not think that Job and his three friends actually talked to one another in this sort of high poetry that you find in the book. So it's stylized, but it is an accurate account of true events. In other words, there is historicity to it in the life of a real man. And the reason why scholars have said that, that Job isn't just a, a made-up figure, you know, like in the parables of Jesus, a figure that he made up for the for the sake of the lesson of the parable, is because Job is referred to, Ezekiel 14.14, 14, and again in the New Testament, James 5.11, in a way that seems to present him as a historical figure. People, even evangelicals, have argued that point, but I think it, 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 it does seem to be an account of true events, events that occurred to a real man in history. The setting... The fact that Job offers sacrifices for his children in the way that he did indicates that the Old Covenant hadn't been established yet, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't be allowed to do that. And his lifespan, if you calculate it up, seems to be well over 200 years, which seems to back the setting of the book up into the patriarchal period, right? When people lived that long. Abraham supposedly lived, you know, close to 200 years. And in fact, Abraham's descendants were in the 200s. And so, you know, this seems to, the setting of the book seems to be prior to the New Covenant and back into the patriarchal period, right? Which is interesting, too, because it sort of de-Israelizes the book, doesn't it? it like I said, it, it adds to the sort of universal, timeless flavor of the book. It's not situated in the history of Israel like most of the, so many of the other books, right? And, and nothing is said of any biblical characters. So again, it's even Genesis, which takes you back before Israel. It's still talking about Abraham and, you know, the descent, you know, real people that tie you into Israel's history. Whereas this book is Job and no one really knows who he is. He's a he's a believer like, you know, like um, Noah. Right. But not really tied into any genealogies that would lead to Israel. And then this, this, the genre of the book. So this is what's called wisdom literature. And that means it's sort of speaking about sort of more universal problems, philosophical issues, you might say. Teaching how things work in God's world. You think of the way the Proverbs do that. You know, this is how things work in God's world. This is how you could be successful. This is how you, how you end up being destroyed because these are the principles of wisdom that God has ordained for his, in his creation. But, of course, here it's speaking of different matters, but there's this sort of flavor of this is how we understand things working in God's world. It's a book that's a mixture of poetry and prose. You go in between story and these dialogues that are written in poetry. The book uses a dialogue between men to teach wisdom. So, you know, the point isn't that you go through and try to figure out who these men were and what they... The point is you're supposed to learn from 
by watching and listening to their conversation. And also, not all the material in the book is affirmed as true. So you have to think, you have to, it, it forces you to step back and say, what, what's the Lord communicating through this dialogue? Because not everything, while some things that Eliphaz and, and um, Zophar, etc. are saying are clearly true, Yet, not everything they're saying is accurate. And Job interacts with it and corrects. And there's this argument, if you will. And some of the things that Job says are clearly accurate, but then God rebukes him, right? So you can't just come to the book and pick out a verse and say, see, you know, Job 23.7 says this. You have to be careful because that's not really how this book works. This book is a dialogue where some things that are said are true, but some things are misguided and are corrected as the book goes on. And you, So you have to take it as a whole and come away and say, what's the lesson here? And that's how some wisdom literature works. You have to be careful with wisdom literature. It's just like with the Proverbs, there's ways to understand Proverbs. They're, you know, train up a child in the way he shall go and he'll not depart from you. And you think, well, if that's true, then why did my child go astray, right? No, well, that's, it's because it's giving you a truism, but not a, this is a universal locked-in principle that's true in every case. You see that sometimes when you have two proverbs saying two opposite things right next to each other. The famous one is, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And then the next proverb says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest... Something, yeah. <laughs> so, you're to a lesson, both are true in different circumstances, right? Well, this is how you have to be careful in how you interpret Job as well. It's not sort of, it doesn't function in the way that other books function. Okay, outline of Job. This is going to be real quick. The prologue, chapters 1 and 2, explain why Job is suffering. Job himself doesn't have access to the information in these, book, in these two chapters. It's all in prose. In other words, straightforward storytelling. He's kept in the dark, we as the reader are allowed in to know why Job is suffering. We know that it's part of this process. It's flowing out of this uh, interaction between God and Satan. And Satan is proving the faithfulness of Job through these series of tests. And Satan is allowed to carry out these afflictions, though God is permitting it. So, we are, we in a sense can look at Job's suffering and say, well, I know why, because it goes back to this interchange. Now, that doesn't mean there's not mystery there, but so Job's suffering is explained to the reader. Then in chapters 3 through 31, Job has three sets of dialogue with each of his three friends. So, in other words, he speaks to yeah, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. He, he speaks to them each in turn. Then he goes back and does it again. And then he goes back and does it again, except in the last one, he doesn't actually speak to the third friend. And, and it's really sort of like the three friends' arguments are petering out, and Job is getting stronger and stronger, right? So when you get to the end, Job really has won the day against his three friends. And that's what Elihu, in the next section, is protesting. They were unable to answer Job. At the heart of the debate is why... Job is suffering. And what's interesting about that is we know why he's suffering, but Job doesn't. And so there's the tension, right? It's the discussion about the, the reason for suffering in God's world when we don't know God's purpose behind it. And so the discussion centers around whether the suffering is because it's a punishment for sin or whether there is such a thing as righteous suffering that God may allow to happen to his people. In other words, um, his people may be, you may have righteous people who suffer that God, and God may allow it for reasons that are you know, unknown to us. Uh, and is that a relevant thing? Does any one of us escape that question in our life? Absolutely not. All of us have to face that. At various times. And it's one of the sources, the greatest sources of anguish in the life of every believer. Why? Oh God, you know, did this happen? Okay, so 
Next, you have Elihu's speeches, chapters 33 through 37. So, so now a fourth friend is enters into the mix. And the purpose of these speeches in the book is a highly debated issue. There are some things that can be said. One is that Elihu advances the argument somewhat from the three friends. So he does echo some things that the three friends say so that he's clearly not got it 100%. But he also advances it in ways that anticipate what God would say in the later chapters. So you can see that whatever you make of Elihu, he's this sort of transitional figure. He echoes some of the things that have been said by the three friends, but so that he's partly wrong, but he also takes it, he has some insights that foreshadow what God was about to say so that he's partially right. And so he's this hinge figure in the book. And what's interesting about him is he doesn't interact with Job at all, right? He, it's, he's really in some ways like a, I'm not saying he's not a real person, but he was like a literary device to sort of move from the grand debate to God's response. Rather than jumping straight into God's response, you have Elihu as sort of setting the table. And then, finally, you have God's answer to Job, chapter 38 through chapter 42, verse 9. And in this section, Job is rebuked two times for questioning God about things that he didn't understand. God's saying to Job, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And, And who are you to question my purposes? Because I'm God, right? And he, so the emphasis in these chapters is on the greatness of God, his, the greatness of his wisdom, the greatness of his power, the greatness of his righteousness, so that what is being answered is the question, has God done something wrong, unrighteous, foolish, in allowing this suffering to happen? And the answer is, God does nothing that is unrighteous or foolish or wrong. God is perfect. So when you come out of those chapters, just like, you know, God, I was a fool to question you, right? And Job responds that way, right? He says, I spoke about things I didn't understand. I put my hand over my mouth. I repent for questioning you, God, in dust and ashes. But what you also see is striking about these chapters is what isn't there, right? (laughs) That Job never receives the explanation that we received in the first two chapters. The reason for his suffering is not ever revealed to him. And that too is important, isn't it? Because what does that communicate to us as readers? We may never understand why we experience suffering. And so what do we do? We look to God and we see his greatness, his glory, his wisdom, his power, his goodness. And we say, I just have to trust you, God. Right? And so you come away from the book with that emphasis that really it comes down to humility and trust in the glory and the greatness of our glorious God, who is perfect and wise, perfectly wise in all his ways. But then the book ends on a note of hope, which is also good, because if there's anything that suffering people need, it's the certainty that one day all these sorrows will be swallowed up in victory. That one day every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more crying, no more pain. And this is what you see in Revelation 21 where I saw new heavens and a new earth. There's no curse there. (laughs) Every tears wipe away, no more crying. The former things will have passed away. Well, you have a sort of foretaste of that. In the last verses of Job where God restores his fortune, and gives him back more than he had before. And he dies a happy man. Fat and happy. <laughs> right? I don't, know if he, I don't know if he was fat. But it's just the abundance of his life is what's emphasized. So that is the sort of outline of the book of Job. And I probably sort of already anticipated <laughs> some of the, the purpose and message of Job and the way that I unpacked it. But I would say the purpose of Job is to teach God's people how to think about and respond to the reality of evil and suffering in the world. And the message of Job is, and I kind of highlight four main things that the book teaches God's people about how to think about and respond to evil and suffering. First, 
It teaches us that God is sovereign over evil and suffering and has a good reason for it. So you think of why, what was the cause of Job's suffering? Let me ask that question. In chapters 1 and 2, we're given the explanation. What was the cause? He was being tested. Okay. Satan was saying, Satan was saying it wouldn't stand up. Yeah. Right. So who afflicted Job? Satan did, because God says, he's in your hand. But when Job reflects on it, what does he say? The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. He tells his wife, shall we not receive from God both good and evil? So, it's both, right? Satan, so God was not the direct cause of these evils, but the evils had been ordained by God. Satan had evil purposes, right? He hated Job. He, he hated God. He wanted to prove that Job was just doing it for the money, right? <laughs> and God had good purposes in allowing it to happen. He was showing that, that he wanted to prove the true nature of Job's character. And of course, you come out of the suffering, and it says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said, right? So, we see that the book emphasizes God's sovereignty over evil and suffering, though he is not the author of evil. There's secondary agency, our own sin, the devil, but he's sovereign over it, and he ordains it for his good purposes, right? Second thing it says is it says that God's purpose for suffering is not always punishment for sin. (laughs) So you remember the disciples looked at the blind man and said, Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This was for the glory of God. And so, uh, the same with Lazarus. He waited three days. Lazarus died. And and Jesus later would say, these things happen so that the Son of Man might be glorified to you. Now, did Mary, who refused to come out, when Jesus arrived, understand that in the moment? No. And they both said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But God has purposes that um, for suffering that are not always punishment for sin. He also ordains it for good purposes, even for his people. Jesus allowed that to happen to two of his closest friends, Mary and Martha. And Lazarus was his friend. Also, He does not always tell us what his reasons are for allowing suffering evil, but simply calls us to trust him. That's obviously, we talked about that. It's a big theme in the book. And then finally, we have to continue to hope in the Lord, knowing that he will vindicate us and restore our fortunes in the end. Right. So there is hope on the other side of suffering and evil. There's a time when the former things will be forgotten because they'll have passed away. And every tear will be wiped away. And that's the, the thing at the, at the end of the book. Now, what about Job in the New Testament? Well, Job is affirmed in the New Testament as himself, as, a, as an individual. James points to him as an example of how to endure suffering with patience. James 5.11. Also, Job's desire for a mediator is anticipated or is answered in the in the um, New Testament. So Job 9, verse 33. Job says, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. We as Christians read that and we go, Wait, wait, wait. There is. The God-man, right, has come. And, and Paul says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now it's not to say that the mediator that... that uh, God has provided in Christ was going to function in the exact way that Job wanted, but nevertheless this desire for someone who could understand a matter uh, from a human perspective, right, in terms of the experience of humanity and could be an arbiter between man and God in that way. I'm not implying at all that God doesn't understand but there's a sense in which, you know, Jesus became like us in every way that he might be a merciful high priest, right? That is answered in the New Testament, in Jesus. 
Also, Job's hope of redemption from death, Job has an expectation of physical resurrection, doesn't he? You remember this? Job 19, verses 25 and 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So, every sufferer, you know, you think of people who suffer with sickness all their life, and then they finally die of their ailment. And they have this this desire, right, of some hope beyond the physical death. And Jesus, that's what Job had. Job had a hope. Somehow he knew that he would stand in the flesh and see God. In my flesh I will see God. The New Testament, of course, explains that, right? That that we will be raised bodily from the dead as the rest of the harvest. Jesus was the first fruits, his bodily resurrection, which guaranteed our bodily resurrection as his, his people, his body. And then Job's claim that suffering is not always punishment for sin, right? He protested to his friends that he was a righteous man. He wasn't perfect, but he wasn't suffering because he had some hidden evil in his life, but that sometimes God allows the righteous to suffer and the wicked to prosper is confirmed in the New Testament. I think one of the clearest places you see this theme affirmed in the New Testament is in the Beatitudes, particularly Luke's version of the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are you, and all the blessings are to those who suffer, right? (laughs) And then he says, woe to you if... All men speak well of you if you are fat and happy in this life. In other words, all the woes are pronounced on people who prosper in this life. Now, these are truisms, right? It doesn't mean that there's no righteous people who are healthy and happy and rich, but, and, and that there aren't any you know, wicked people who suffer. But the beatitudes, the blessings and the woes of Jesus are just one place where you see that, you know, a person's suffering doesn't mean they're there must be under God's judgment. In fact, the opposite. You know, blessed are you who hunger and thirst. You shall be satisfied, right? And then also the hope of final vindication for the righteous and a reversal of fortunes is also confirmed in the New Testament. So first Thessalonians one, we, we saw this. Uh, where God will come and vindicate his people and deliver them as he delivered Job from his suffering. But the New Testament's hope also just encompasses the general fact that, you know, you have righteous people who suffer all their lives from sickness or bereavement or financial loss or whatnot, and they, they're like modern-day Job's. And they, they, you just look at their lives and you say, man, they have they're more than their, seemingly more than their fair share of suffering. Even you know, you know you're like, well, I'm, you know, God, you're wise. But those people who never seem to come out of it, there's hope for them beyond the grave, and that hope is so glorious that it will swallow up the pain and heartache of suffering. And then finally, Jesus becomes the ultimate embodiment of all of these principles, who not only sets an example of us for us of suffering and enduring suffering with patience. You remember 1 Peter 2 where he's talking to uh, wives and slaves and Christians who are persecuted and he's telling them to endure. And then he says how Jesus has set an example for us who, you know, though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And he talks about Jesus' death on the cross. So Jesus is... The ultimate example, Job's an example, but Jesus is an example of enduring suffering with patience. But more than that, he becomes the ultimate example of the fact that suffering is not something to despair over, but the way that God brings good out of suffering in that his cross... As the old hymn says, the emblem of suffering and shame, right, is actually the very means by which God brings life and glory. In fact, in John's gospel, which we're studying, Jesus will look to his cross and he will refer to it as the hour of, and you think, 
the hour of his suffering, right? But what does he call it? The hour of his glory, right? And and so this paradox uh, of God, you could say Jesus is God. And in that sense, not he didn't suffer in his divine nature. The divine nature is impassable, cannot suffer. However, God, because Jesus is God, suffered in the sense that the person of Jesus suffered according to his human nature, right? You have God suffering on a cross in that sense. So we sing that hymn, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. That's what we mean. Not that the divine nature died. That's impossible. But that Jesus is God. And Jesus entered into our world, took on human flesh, and suffered and died. He was the suffering servant. And so, that becomes the ultimate thing that we look to in our suffering, isn't it? As you say, our suffering is put into perspective by the cross, and the suffering servant hanging on a tree for us. Right? The God who ordained suffering for me is not unacquainted with these things. Right? All right. Let's pray. I've taken you too long, obviously, again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time studying Esther and Job. What glorious books you've given us. We pray that you would illumine our hearts with understanding by your Spirit, that we would grasp the teaching of these books and and how they point us to the Lord Jesus, his person and work. And we pray that you would allow our hearts to absorb their teaching and to take it to heart and they would have a transformative effect upon us and that we would be equipped to better understand them the next time we read them and to explain them to others and teach them these words of eternal life as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.